Well, we're going to begin a new series today in the book of First Timothy chapter 3 in the New Testament, so I invite you to begin turning there. I feel like as we start this morning, I need to introduce myself to you. I'm Roger Poupart. Uh, I get the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here, and uh, I know you've had some great teaching while I was away on vacation. I've listened to a couple of the sermons so far, and we have a, a very gifted pastoral team here that I know fed everyone well. Uh, I asked y'all to pray before I was gone. I was going to be doing a two-week backpacking trip in the mountains of New Mexico with my son, and my back held up, so thank you for praying. Uh, We did 70-plus miles with a 63-pound pack, and uh, it was a lot of fun, but I'm glad to be home. And I also was able to celebrate my 31st anniversary with my wife, Kim, so uh, thank you. So as we start in the Bible this morning, I want to begin with a joke. Uh, It was, (laughs) there was a pastor and an elder who decided to go deer hunting on the ranch of one of the members of their church. And as they arrived at the ranch, the pastor went to tell the owner they were there. And as they uh, went in, the pastor was there, the elder was still behind the steering wheel in the pickup truck. And the rancher said, Pastor, I've got this old mule. I've had him for over 20 years, and I, I, love, I love this mule, but it's, it's become lame and blind, and the vet says it has to be put down, and I, I just don't have the heart to do it myself. Could you uh, maybe take care of that for me? So the pastor said he would, he would do so. He could you know, shoot the mule before they went out to hunt. And uh, as he walked back to the truck, he decided to play a joke on the elder. So he opens up the back of the cab, and he pulls his rifle out, and he says, I am so mad. That guy just said, we've got to get off his ranch. We can't hunt today. He said, I'm going to show him. And he levels his rifle across the truck and shoots the mule dead. Now, the elder's eyes get as big as saucers. He can't believe what he just saw. Uh, Suddenly, he throws the truck into gear, and he takes off and tears around the back of the farmhouse. Now, the, the pastors just bust out laughing about this, but suddenly he hears three more shots. And uh, he goes running around the back of the farmhouse to see what has just happened. And the elder's standing there smiling, and he said, I fixed him good, Pastor. You only got his old mule, but I got three of his cows. (laughs) Now, that's a joke, so just no no animals were harmed in the telling of this joke. (laughs) You know, what I found is as a leader, you have to be careful what you say because people listen, and they should. You also have to be careful who you choose as leaders. And coming in a couple of months, on September 15th, Wayside Chapel is going to be choosing uh, a number of new leaders. It's our annual congregational meeting. Those of you who are members of our church uh, will be able to vote on the calling of new elders. And we have three men who are going to be appointed as potential candidates for the congregation to vote on. And we have a fourth elder who's finished a three-year term, and then he's going to be put forward to stand for another three-year term. And so what that means is we have a very significant season in the life of our church appointing four new elders, or three elders and possibly reapproving this one who's had commendable service. And in addition to that, next week we have two ordination councils here at Wayside Chapel. One is uh, one of our pastors, uh, or he's, he's still a director. He's soon to be a pastor, Jason Upmore. He's finished his seminary studies, and we will be uh, finalizing his ordination council and then uh, presenting him to you as a congregation in five weeks. 
to be ordained here in front of the congregation. The other is a, a man in our church who's uh, seeking to be a military chaplain. He's also completed his seminary studies. And so these are very significant uh, things that are happening in our body. And as we talk about these leaders, elders and pastors, what is it that, that we look at to decide whether these men are qualified to serve? And so what I want to do today in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in the next three weeks is to look at the, gu- the guidelines God has given to us in his word, the qualifications that set apart leaders in the church. So I invite you to look with me now in your Bible at 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we read in verses 1 through 13 what God has given us as guidelines. It says it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he be able to take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women, likewise, must be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be the husband of only one wife and good managers of their children in their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, as we read this list, you can see it's pretty extensive. And this is actually not the totality of it, because in the Bible there are a couple of other passages. There in Titus chapter 1, as well as in 1 Peter chapter 5, that also contain qualifications of what a leader in the church is to look like. Now, given the length of this list and the importance of it, you can see why we're not going to try to rush through this in one Sunday, but instead are going to spend several weeks going through this. And as we go through this list, I want you to look at the different qualifications. And I want you to not only think of them in terms of what a leader in the church is to look like, but I want you to look at your own life personally. Because while these are qualifications for a biblical leader in the church, they are also marks of maturity for Christians. And so each and every one of us, every man, woman, boy, and girl who calls himself a follower in Christ, should look at these and say, does it describe me? And if not, to ask God to help you begin to grow in these areas so that you can grow in your own personal walk with God. So as we look over this list over the next couple of weeks, it's a great checklist for us to look at it in our own lives and see how we're doing in our walk with God in terms of maturity. So we look at 1 Timothy 3.1. It begins by saying it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Now, there are a couple of different Greek words that are used to describe the leaders in the church. And the first one here for overseer is episkopos. You've probably heard of episcopals. Well, this is the Greek word episkopos. And it means a bishop, 
a shepherd, an overseer. This word is only used five times in the New Testament to describe leaders. Four of them are used of church leaders, and one time it is used of Jesus Christ himself, where it it describes him as uh, a leader in the church. Uh, uh, We find this word in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where it says, Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos, to shepherd the church of God with which he is purchased with his own blood. I told you it's used to describe Jesus himself. That's in 1 Peter 2.25. There it speaks of Jesus Christ as the great shepherd. And so the elders in a church are appointed to be the shepherd of the flock, to be those who guard and guide the flock. As you read Psalm 23, you see a beautiful picture of what a shepherd is as it describes God being our own shepherd. Now, another Greek word that's used to describe leaders is presbyteros. We hear the word presbyterian in our day. And this is an elder. Uh, This word is used 66 times in the Bible, and it's not used exclusively only of a church leader. There are times that it's also used to describe somebody who is an elder in terms of chronological age. Now, the two go hand in hand because we're talking about a mature leader, and as we age, we hopefully grow in wisdom and maturity as well. But it's not always just limited to that because in 1 Timothy 4.12, the Apostle Paul told a young pastor named Timothy, but let no one look down on your youthfulness. So there are times that somebody may be younger in terms of chronological age, but it still speaks of the maturity of the faith that they are to have. Now, the flip side of that is somebody can be older and still not mature in how they act. In fact, we're warned about that in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. It says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. So those were Christians who had not grown and matured and were still kind of uh, the pictures of a baby believer who needed a milk bottle instead of steros, the word steroid for meat at the time. Now, the heart of the qualification here is those who are mature in their faith. And as you look at 1 Timothy 3, 6, you see a warning for those who maybe are appointed as leaders before they're ready, those who are mature, because there it says that if you appoint a new convert, somebody who the word means newly planted, it means that they can get a big head. They can become proud or puffed up, and they can fall into the same sin of pride that Satan himself fell to. Now, this word, there's another word that's used for leaders in the church, and it's diakonos. And this word means a deacon, a servant, or a minister. And you probably noticed as I was reading the qualifications that women were mentioned under the office of deacon or deaconess. And so here at Wayside Chapel, we believe the Bible is clear that elders are to be men, and that deacons and deaconesses, women can also serve in this role. Now, as I'm talking about that, you're going to hear me say today and several times in this series that the title alone is not important. If you're the type of person that says, I have to have the title in order to do the ministry, then you're, you're probably not qualified. Because it's not about having a title. It's about doing the work. And so we have plenty of people in our church, men and women, who are serving in leadership capacities that don't have a formal title. And when it comes to this, this office of a deacon or a deaconess, we actually, our constitution allows uh, there to be deacons in our church, but we don't have a board of deacons that functions in terms of a formal sitting board. But we do have men and women who function in the capacity of deacons. 
one of those is we have a finance committee, and this is made up of men and women who have a background in finance, those who are accountants and CPAs and various people who share their, their gift and their work world experience to oversee the finances of our church. And so they're serving in the role of a deacon or a deaconess, people who are overseeing the physical needs of the body. We see this office was uh, started in Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. There it says, and we're, it says the 12, this is speaking of the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, but select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so what was happening is as the early church was growing and the body was growing and the needs were growing, you remember as you read through Acts, there were places that talked about how the widows were being neglected. They had physical needs that were going unmet. There were other things that were needed to be administered in the church and the elders were led by God to raise up uh, servants, deacons, uh, deaconesses to meet the physical needs of the body. As I said, we have those in our church who do this. Another ministry where men and women serve at Wayside is in our agape committee. The word agape is a Greek word for love. There are several words, but this is the all-giving, self-sacrificing love. And this describes our benevolence committee that comes alongside and meets the physical needs of families in our church. People who have financial uh, hardship that have happened. They may have it on on an anticipated medical situation. There could be a loss of a job, other things that have put a family into a financial crisis. And these are are gifted women and men who have the gift of mercies and administration to come together, assess the need, look at the resources, and, and take care of the physical needs of the body. We have men who serve in something that we call the amen ministry. And this is, again, a physical caring for the flock. These are men who will do things like uh, we do oil changes for widows and single moms. Uh, These are also men who will come alongside some of our military families where uh, the soldier may be deployed and the spouse is home and there's something that breaks in the home or there's a a need uh, at home. And so these are men who will come in and perform some handyman type of functions to, to take care of the families while these soldiers are deployed overseas. We have a funeral committee. This is made up of women and men, again, who come alongside and care for families in a time of loss. Uh, They will deal with things like getting food to the house to take care of the family while they're grieving. They will oversee the, the planning of the service alongside the pastors. They'll handle the reception for the family and friends who come for the funeral. And so while we don't have a formal uh, titled board of deacon and deaconesses, we have men and women in our church that are doing the functions uh, that are set out here in the scriptures. Now, as Paul is talking about those who serve as elders, he says in 1 Timothy 3.1, if any man aspires to the office of elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. And as you look at this long, extensive list of biblical qualifications, it may surprise you to hear that this qualification of somebody aspiring to the office of elder is actually the one that eliminates the most candidates every year. When it comes around to time to uh, look at members of the congregation to serve in this capacity, 
members of our church are able to put forward the names of, of men that they believe are uh, performing the, the role of an elder. We, are, we always look for somebody who's already doing the ministry and then say, are we going to come alongside and affirm this and, and, and call them to be a sitting elder on the board? And when they, they are asked to do this, there will be between 25 and 40 names that are put forward every year. And then there's an elder vetting committee that is made up of members of the congregation and elders who will look at the, the individual. They'll look through the, the list of qualifications. Uh, there are interviews that are had with the person, with their spouse as well. We talk to the wives to say, do you believe your husband is qualified to be an elder? We ask the wife uh, if you and your family are prepared for some of the things that may come with your husband being an elder. And so as we go through this part of the process, uh, the vast majority of candidates that are put forward by the congregation will say, I do not desire to serve as a sitting elder. I don't aspire to the office. Now, it's not that these individuals are not servant leaders. It's not that these people uh, lack a heart to serve the body. What often happens is they are already serving in capacities in our church in various ministries, and they say in order to be a sitting board elder where you attend the meetings on Tuesday nights and pray for the sick and anoint and do the various things that we do as elders uh, here in our church, they say, I would have to step away from another area of ministry I'm already involved in. And so they make the choice not to uh, be a board elder in order to continue the ministry that they're already doing. And so this, this qualification of aspiring to the office is a very important one. Now, it can also disqualify somebody on the other side. In a very rare instance, you may have an individual who aspires to the office so much that it's moved into the area of coveting the, the position of being an elder. Uh, I've not seen that here at Wayside. In the first church I pastored, there was a, a man in our church who every year demanded to be made an elder. He was a good man, a, a godly guy, but he coveted the office of elder so much that he said, I have to be an elder, and it disqualified him. Now, over a period of six years and working with this individual, his heart changed, and he ultimately did become a wonderful elder in our church. But as I mentioned earlier, if you're somebody that gets hung up and says, I have to have the title in order to be a leader in the church, then you're, you're probably not qualified to serve in this capacity because being an elder is not about having power and prestige. If you're somebody who, who desires to be called an elder because you, you think it will raise your significance in the eyes of others or, or give you the control of the church, then you don't understand what being an elder is at all. As you look at what the scripture tells us about the, the role of an elder, 1 Peter chapter 5 Verses 2 through 3 tells us this. Elders are to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, with eagerness, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, and not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. When I was growing up uh, as, a young, as, a, as a boy and then as a young man, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and I served in the Roman Catholic Church as an altar boy, as some of you may from your background. And uh, as, as an altar boy, you would prepare for Mass and you'd go into the back area of the, the sanctuary, the vestibule area, and you would put on these um, vestments. And so you put on a, a plain black robe and then you had a little white overlay. 
Now, the priest had more elaborate vestments. Theirs may be colored. They would have a stole. They would have various things that they would add uh, to their, the, the vestments they were wearing. Now, if the bishop were ever there at the church, then they had a, a much more ornate set of, of vestments and robes. Theirs would be colored, and they would have lace, and they had a, a big hat called a mitre, and they had a big shepherd's crook, and they had a, a ring. And uh, you were told to uh, kneel down and kiss the ring of the bishop whenever he was there. And so because the scriptures say that I'm an episkopos, a bishop, uh, I dug in my drawer and found my old college ring this morning. I got the biggest ring I have. And uh, the Aggies are going to have a hard time because this is a University of Texas ring. So when they... So when they... (laughs) When they have to kneel down and kiss it, it's going to be really hard, you know. Uh, no, you don't have to kiss my ring. I don't ever wear this. I just put it on today for an illustration. What kind of pastor would I be if I made you kiss my ring? Probably unemployed, and rightfully so. Because the Bible says here, I'm not to lord it over the flock, which God has appointed me and others to minister to. So as I said earlier... We need to understand the role of an elder, a leader in the church. It's not about power. It's not about prestige. It's about serving the Lord and serving his flock. I want you to remember when Jesus was at the Last Supper with the disciples. And as he gathered them together, as he uh, was sitting there, remember none of them had washed each other's feet because that was the place of the lowest servant. And they were prideful men, and they were arguing about who's the greatest, and nobody wanted to take this role. And, and you remember that Jesus, in, in the Gospel of John, got up. It says he laid aside his robes. He girded himself with a towel. He took a basin, and he went around, and he washed the feet of all of the disciples. And when he finished, John chapter 13, verses 14 through 15 tell us that Jesus said, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Men and women, if you want to be a leader in the church, you don't need a a title. You need a towel. You don't need a title. You need a towel. We need to do as God did. And that's what our leaders in our church, whether they're elders or pastors or directors or servants who serve in so many capacities, Wayside is filled with wonderful servant leaders who are doing the things that we're talking about today. You know, sometimes this role of an elder has been improperly defined. People will tell you that an elder is the policymaker of the church. They're the financial officer. They're a fundraiser, an administrator. They're they're the person who, who is the shepherd Uh, ministering to the flock is what God tells us the role is. It's not all these other things. Those may be functions that the office includes, but it's not what defines an elder. There was a book written by Alexander Strauch, and it's called Biblical Eldership, and he describes an elder this way. He says, The images of a shepherd caring for his flock, standing long hours ensuring its safety, leading it to fresh pasture and clear water, Caring the weak, seeking the lost, healing the wounded and the sick. The whole image is of a Palestinian shepherd characterized by intimacy, tenderness, concern, skill, hard work, suffering, and love. 
There's another book called Skillful Shepherds where Derek Timble describes the role of an elder as being a subtle blend of authority and care. He says it is as much a toughness as a tenderness, as much courage as comfort. Elders are called to lead the church, to teach the word, to shepherd and exhort the flock, to watch over and protect the flock from false teachers and false doctrine that can come in. And this is the role of of what elders do. You're a, a shepherd. It's what you do where you serve, not what you get or gain. The next qualification of an overseer is it says he is above reproach. This word means blameless, irreproachable. It's found not only here in 1 Timothy 3, but also in Titus 1, 6 and 7. Uh, the Greek word literally means nothing to take hold of. Nothing to take hold of. This word is used five times in the Bible. Once in regard to the qualification for a deacon. Two times as it applies to elders. And the other two times it's used in the Bible is to describe what our glorified state of perfection will be like when we get home to heaven. Colossians 1.22 uses this word and it says, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, since this doesn't happen until after we die, when we die, our sin nature is done away with. We receive our glorified state where we are made perfect in heaven. And so if that is the word that is being used two times in the Bible to describe that, then what person could ever qualify for this qualification? Because as I said, we're all sinful and fallen people. We all still have a sin nature while we're here on earth. So how can a man measure up to the role of being above reproach? Literally nothing to take hold of. Let me illustrate it this way. When I was growing up, uh, I, have, I have three brothers and two sisters. And when I was growing up, my dad would take the four boys. We were all within a year of each other. And he'd line us up on the back porch, and he'd come out with a, uh, one of these clippers. You know, he didn't use like a three and style our hair. And he just put it on the lowest setting, and he'd just line us up. And it didn't take long. And by the time he was done, we all looked like four fuzzy cue balls standing there. Right? He had shaved us down to pretty much our scalp. There was about that much hair left. And and in doing that, I found there were two advantages. One is that you didn't really have to worry about taking care of your hair. There wasn't anything to style or clean or other. It was pretty much gone. And the second is when your brothers would try to get in a fight with you and tried to pull your hair, uh, their hands just kind of slipped right off, off your head. There was literally nothing to take hold of. And that's the picture here. As God says, look at your life. And he says, does your life look like something with long flowing locks where people can grab handfuls of things to accuse you of? Or is your life more like a Mr. Clean where you've got this kind of shaved head where there's, there's nothing to take hold of? As you think in terms of, of your life, this is a characteristic, as I said, that we should all seek to have in our life. I mentioned earlier that we have this vetting process where we look at the lives of men who have been set forward as elders. We talk to their family. We look at their reputation in the community. There was one year here at Wayside, uh, about seven or eight years ago, actually almost 10 at this point, where there was a man in our church who appeared to be a, a good and godly leader. He was known in our church, served in various ways, 
But as the committee began to look into his life, they found he had a bad reputation out in the community in terms of how he did business. Uh, this man was not known for being a very ethical business person. And so we disqualified and removed his name as a potential elder candidate. Because it is important that there is nothing to take hold of in your life, not only in terms of the church, but also out there in the community, because who you represent as a leader, who we represent as Christians, is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we have a bad reputation, it reflects on our Savior. And if you're a leader in the church, you reflect on the organization. And so this is why this characteristic is important. In verse 7, there's another characteristic tied in with being above reproach as it says you are to have a good reputation with those outside of the church. The Cambridge Dictionary defines reputation this way. It is the opinion that people in general have about someone or something or, or how much admiration or respect someone has based on past behavior. Now, if that dictionary definition is a little too long for you to, to think about, here's, a, here's an easier way to define reputation. Reputation is what you are when everybody is looking, right? Reputation is what you are when everybody is looking. And character is what you are when nobody is looking. Character is what you are when nobody is looking. See, unfortunately, we live in a day where people are more worried about the public personification, how they present themselves on social media, or what people say about them than they are really with their inner character. And the two, you can say I can separate the two. I can be a, a person who lacks character, but I can present myself and, and build a reputation a certain way. But ultimately, the two catch up to one another. And who you are in private will eventually be found out in public. And conversely, if you have nothing to worry about in the way that you act when nobody is looking, then you don't have to worry about your reputation because that will take care of itself as well. Now, sometimes people will try to smear your reputation, uh, no matter how good of a person you may be in terms of the way you act when nobody's looking. Uh, I had an experience like this back in the, the late 80s. Uh, when I was working my way through seminary, I did so as a police officer in Dallas. And so I would work midnight to 8 as a cop, and then I would get off, and I would go to seminary from 9 to noon, and then I would go home and sleep about five hours, get up, do my homework for seminary, and then go back and do it all over again. And I did that for eight years. And so everybody at the police department knew I was in seminary. I had a lot of nicknames, Reverend Raj, Pastor with a Pistol. Uh, you know, I had, I had various nicknames and things. But... Um, there was, there was a time where the watch commander wanted me to, um, when you're a cop, after a period of time, you get assigned to a beat, you have a assigned area, and you get it both through seniority and kind of hard work. And this watch commander wanted to put an uh, officer with me on my beat. Her name was Pam. And so uh, there are lots of wonderful uh, combinations of partners in the police department, but one of the dangers of working with uh, somebody of a different sex than you is that you're around that person more than you're around your spouse. You know, I was married to my wife, Kim, and I would see her in the evenings and I'm sleeping and, and for eight hours a night, I'm in a car with Pam. And so I'm, I'm with this lady more than I'm with my wife. And you're separated by a shotgun and a radio and you'd think the shotgun was enough to keep people apart. 
But unfortunately, there were plenty of stories of affairs that happened between men and women who were police officers. And so one, before I started working with Pam, I asked the lieutenant if my wife could meet her and kind of give her blessing. And so Kim and Pam met, and they became friends over time. And uh, Pam was an interesting lady. At first, she was not a Christian. After four years, she became a believer. But Pam was pretty rough uh, when we first started working together. And unfortunately, Pam had a divorce during our time together. Her husband was a police officer in another station. And so they divorced. And there was a guy in our station who tried to start a rumor that the reason the divorce happened was because Pam and I had an affair. And so this guy went around telling everybody that we had been sleeping together. And uh, he would, when we were at the jail, there were six other patrol divisions. He'd be telling everybody, hey, you know what happened over here? And everybody that he tried to start this rumor with would say, no, that didn't happen. Roger didn't do that. And it wasn't because I was just in seminary. Uh, It was because of other things. You know, police are wonderful people, but they deal with a lot of difficult things. And sometimes, unfortunately, they try to blow off steam in in bad ways. You know, after work, some of them will go to a a topless bar, and I would never go. They would have uh, police parties. Now, you called them safety meetings because you couldn't couldn't put on the bulletin board, party under the central bridge at, you know, whatever time, BYOB. So they'd say safety meeting at the, uh, you know, viaduct. And so everybody knew what was going on. And at these type of things, I see some cops out there smiling back at me. They know about this stuff. Uh, So there was a point where you knew you needed to leave the safety meeting or you'd be at internal affairs the next day because things would kind of get out of hand. And um, so I had a reputation that was being built. Started all the way back in the academy with classmates who were at other stations who could say, no, that's not who Roger is. And it was when I was working where I was working. Now, I don't say that to brag. I just share that with you because I want you to think about your own life right now. And ask yourself, if somebody started a rumor about you, would it take traction? Would there be something to hold on to? Would people say, well, there's a lot of hair over here in this area. There's a lot of this type of behavior. And so would that rumor get legs and grow? Or would people say, that doesn't match up with everything I know about this person? And so as you think about your life, I want you to remember that it takes years and years to build a reputation, but literally minutes to lose it. And so your reputation is precious, and you need to guard it, and you need to be careful in how you're acting. And if we live our lives being above reproach, there's going to be little to take hold of. And when a rumor is started about you, it will die off as well because people will say that's not who this person is. Now, another reason to live above reproach is what I've already mentioned. You represent Jesus Christ. And people will say, well, that person is a Christian. And they'll begin to say, well, all Christians are painted with a picture that looks like what people know about you. And if you're a leader in a church or a ministry, same thing. People will associate you and that ministry with your reputation. Now, if you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, Roger, my reputation is such a mess. It's been blown up a long time ago. Not only am I not leadership material, but I don't even know why I'm here in church this morning. I don't even know what God wants to do with me. My life is so far off in the weeds that, that, you know, my reputation is gone. I saw a sign in a dry cleaner's once that said, we clean everything but your reputation. Okay? 
Well, I want to remind you that they may not be able to clean your reputation, but Jesus Christ can. Because the Bible says that God knows all about you. He knows every single thing about you. He knows your character, what you've done in the dark that nobody else yet knows. And he knows who you are and what you've done in the past. And God has not stopped loving you. In fact, God loves you so much, he sent his son Jesus to die for you. Read Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God says, I see you at your worst, an enemy of mine, a person in rebellion, somebody running far from me. And he said, I left heaven to come to earth to pursue you. I sent my son who ultimately went to a cross to die to pay the penalty of death that you owe for your sins. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves you. He loves you just like you are. A mess, a sinner, a person far from him. But he also loves you too much to leave you like you are. And he calls you to repent. That word means literally to stop, to turn around, and go in the other direction. He says, quit running from me. Quit running to your sin. Instead, turn around, come to the cross, and I will welcome you into the family. First John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. He says, I want to adopt you into my family. I want you to be my daughter, my son. I love you, not this much or this much, but this much. And he spread his arms wide and he died for you. And he says in Romans 10.9, If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. He invites you today to come to him. He'll clean your reputation. He'll turn your life around. Read the Bible and look at all the stories of men and women who were a mess who came to Christ. You can start with somebody like Zacchaeus. Remember him? He was a tax collector. The worst of the worst. The enemy of of society. They, They worked for Rome. They were traitors. People hated tax collectors. They would steal from their their own people, even their families. Zacchaeus was the worst of the worst, and he came to Christ, and his, his reputation was started fresh. He became a believer, started walking with God. It, it happens even after you're a believer and you make a mess of your life. Look at Peter. Remember Peter who denied Jesus three times? We had a sermon a few months back called Failure Isn't Final, and we talked about how God recommissioned Peter And he took him where he was and he said, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. He restored him three times. He didn't say, Peter, you get to start at the bottom, shovel up after the sheep, and maybe you'll earn your way back in eventually. He said, I've hit the reset button, Peter. And you're fresh, you're new, you're back. 1 John 1.9 tells us, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. Whatever sin you have in your life, friends, goes in that word all. And God can remove it. He can start fresh with you. Have you ever read Matthew chapter 1? Go home and read through Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. Look at the names of the women and the men who are listed there. It's a who's who list of mess. (laughs) I mean, do you read through there? There are harlots, half-breeds, murderers, adulterers. You go through the whole list. 
name after name of the people in there are those that society would say these are the these have been written off and what god did was as they came to faith in christ as they were redeemed and restored he included them in the genealogy of our savior jesus christ so if you think god can do nothing with you because of your past you're wrong If you have a past where your reputation is one you're not proud of, you can change that today by coming to Christ and allowing him to hit the reset button and begin to change you. Remember 1 John 1, 9, if, that's a big if, you've got to do that, if you confess your sins, then God is faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I want us to close in prayer today, and as we do so, I want you to think about your life this morning, where you are. If you find yourself in here this morning far from God, never having begun your relationship with Jesus because you've been trying to earn your way to God, being good enough, doing enough good things, working your way, attending church, those things are important, but they will not save you. We are saved through faith alone in what Jesus did for us. Book of Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. And so if you're far from God this morning, turn to him today. Say, God, I want to come home. I'm turning from my sin into you to be my savior, Jesus. I accept your death in my place. You paid the penalty of death for me on the sin, on the cross, and I accept your death in my place. And the Bible says that you'll be washed clean and you'll begin your walk with God. And for the rest of us who maybe have come to faith, but maybe you've fallen away, maybe you've been running from God, maybe you're, you're, you're what we call backslidden, you're, you're far from God, God says today you can stop, turn around, and come back to me. I'm ready to hit the restore button as well. So confess your sins this morning. Turn to God. Talk to him in prayer, and I'll close this here in a moment. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word that sets out for us standards of how to live our lives. And yet we know, as your word also tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us, every man, woman, boy, and girl who's ever lived, other than your son Jesus, the perfect God-man, has fallen short. We've all sinned. We all owe a penalty of death. And we thank you, God, that when we fail to measure up at some point, you did not reject us. But instead, you loved us so much, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to come and take our place, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty of death that we owed for our sins. Father, there may be somebody here this morning who wants to come home, who wants to turn to you, And begin their walk with you. And I pray for that person this morning that they would say to you, God, I'm a sinner. I recognize I've fallen short. And I owe a penalty of death. But I know, Jesus, you died for me. You took my place. And I accept your gift of grace, your payment of death for my sins. I accept you today, Jesus, to be my Savior, and I believe you rose from the dead three days later, showing you were indeed God. You conquered sin and death, 
And I thank you that you are inviting me and have welcomed me into your family this morning because I'm turning to you, Jesus, to be my Savior. I pray, Lord, for that person or people that you will help them to begin to walk with you, to start a new life in Christ where the old things have been done away with and they begin to walk in newness of life. Father, for others of us, we've come to faith in the past, but we've also failed. We've made a mess. And we thank you that you've not given up on us. But again, you're waiting for us to come home. Open arms, wide open, waiting to welcome us. And today, Father, for those who are turning back to you, I pray that you would help them to set aside the things that have been drawing them away from you and help them to focus fully on their walk with you. Would you help all of us, God, to walk with you? Would you help all of us, God, to be good representatives of you? As we leave here today, as we go into the world, to our schools, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, would we, we be witnesses of the grace we've received? Would our lives reflect that of our Savior, Jesus? We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ.